The reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 11. Paul's speaking again to the Corinthians. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How are you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. Excuse me. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Hello, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you today on Mother's Day. Now, I am going to share a story about a mother I met this weekend. I saw my very first Sunday school teacher this weekend. Now, it had been at least 20 years. Imagine that, 20 years since I'd seen her. Um, And we talked in the fellowship hall of the church I grew up in, which to me felt like a major throwback. As we talked, I asked her what the church was up to. No, she wasn't going to this church anymore. Had had she moved? She hasn't moved. Where was she attending church? She was no longer attending church. But is she still a Christian? She is still a committed Christian. What is going on here? I'm thinking. The reason she's no longer attending church is the same reason she had to rush back off to her car shortly after our brief conversation. And it is because she has multiple children with special needs that were waiting for her. And I got the sense of the pain that had been growing inside her since the last time I saw her. As we talked about old New England churches, like our church here, there never being enough space for a sensory room or uh, quiet rooms. Um, I wondered 
if church for her must be a fairly organic experience. Um, the people come into her home to visit, and the, the family uh, sees the face of Christ in, in those people, um, and vice versa. They see the face of Christ in her sons and her, and communion is sharing dinner, and sermons are playing multiplayer video games. But no, I learned that they live deeply isolated lives, and I wondered where, where are the aunts and uncles in, in these kids' lives? Where are the brothers and sisters of this mother? She was her family's pastor. She was her own pastor. They were each other's community. And since I knew her, she, as their caretaker, had been slowly becoming more isolated and losing contact with friends and other relationships. The thing that kept her sane was the belief in miracles for her son and the hope of the second coming. And can I ask you to imagine that for a second? Can you imagine if the thing that was keeping you sane for 20 years was a belief in miracles that your sons were going to recover from a severe cognitive illness and a belief and the hope for the second coming, which are good things, but those are the only things she had for 20. Can you imagine that? This interaction made me think about my, my philosophy of the church, which makes me think about, think about our passage. Second Corinthians tells us again and again that true power is not found in strength. It's not found in eloquent speech. True, true power is not found in boasting. True power is found in weakness, in the places that are delicate, in things that can hurt and break, in places where it's possible to feel pain. True power cries. True power bleeds. True power is not impervious to the elements. It's found in places that rust and corrode, in places that rot and decay. True power is found in weakness because that is the place where we find the God who dwells in weakness. True power is found in weakness because God, who is our power, dwells in places where weakness is found not sat upon Mount Olympus, far removed from the stain and strain of a needy humanity, not even in a sanctimonious heavenly realm, far removed from the separation of guilt and sin, but through the sort of gritty love that Jesus embodied. True power is found in weakness. Today we continue to hear the, the words of Paul and his theology of power turned upside down. At the heart of this passage, Paul demonstrates his commitment to the Corinthian church, his commitment. And what we learn is that it's not merely through random acts of kindness, through charity, that we grow, but it's through devotion and commitment to one another. It's through commitment that we grow. We learn that churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow. Churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow. So in this sermon, after defining commitment, we'll jump around this passage, exploring the mutiny on Paul's leadership, which we've seen again and again. And we'll name three reasons that Paul had 
to jump ship. He could have jumped ship. But the three reasons he had to stay, and he did stay. So let's start with, what do I mean by commitment? Now, commitment in relationship, it means dedicating yourself to someone else and a dedication that's followed through over time. It's a couple in a long-distance relationship who regularly make effort to talk on the phone and, and make plans to visit one another. It's a parent or a guardian that prioritizes spending time with their kids, even when they're busy and tired. It's a volunteer who shows up week after week, rain or shine, to help with those in need. Commitment sticks around even when there are reasons not to. Marriage vows illustrate this principle, this principle of commitment. Marriage is the promise to love and cherish and honor another person. And what do we say? In, in sickness or in health, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. In a variety of circumstances, over a period of time. Love commits, and only committed love transforms. Hear me out. Paul has good reasons to call it quits, to leave, to call it a day. It was good while it lasted, but he did not sign up for this, this weird sparring ministry love triangle thing going on with the so-called super apostles. I recently learned of a pastor who started a church in Chelmsford, and this was in 2003. When times got tough, this pastor left. He spiritually abandoned this church, left it to the youth pastor to pick up the pieces. One fateful day, he just left. No warning. He just got tired of ministry. Maybe he got tired of the things Paul was dealing with right here. Paul has good reasons to jump ship. There's a mutiny at hand. His crew has called into question his leadership on multiple, multiple fronts. His ministry was being criticized. That's where we start in verse 11. In verse 11, we read, I, that is Paul, have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. So we can infer by, 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 from this that this is a self-defense because Paul says, you drove me to it. He said, I ought to have been commended, which implies he was not being commended. Paul takes a different approach than what you might expect when someone is defending themselves. He says, and this is how it, he ends the verse, I am nothing. Self-abasement, which not only basically agrees with the criticism, he amplifies it. You say I'm inferior, well, I say I am nothing. You say you do not have the wisdom and the speaking, the clever speaking of these super apostles. Well, I say I am a fool. I make myself a fool. You know, this is the worst self-defense of all self-defenses. Just think about it. Paul is writing this because his ministry is being declared inferior to the ministry of the super apostles. He says, you're right. And let me take it a step further. You know, if you ever find yourself in a court of law defending yourself, don't do what Paul is doing here. Not only does Paul agree with the criticisms, he amplifies it. He takes it the next step further because he wants to make the point that their criticisms don't stand. You know, the next thing Paul defends is his collection of money. If we go back to chapter 9, and you don't have to do it, you can if you'd like, um, we see Paul 
uh, goes into extraordinary detail saying that giving financially to the church is important. God loves a cheerful giver. It seems as though Paul is defending his financial arrangement with the church in Corinth and his use of their capital when he collects money from them. He, he actually uses the word burden three times in this. He says, I am not a burden. He says this in verse 14. What I want is not your possessions. He even uses the word exploit two times, saying, I did not exploit you. Titus did not exploit you. These are strong words. Not only does Paul defend himself, but actually he turns the accusation back on them and back on the church itself. Read this with me in verse 13. He says, so he's saying, I was inferior, yada, yada, yada. How, how were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. He says that they, this other church is inferior because he was never a burden to them. He might be saying, if a super apostle preaches killer sermons, well, a super church pays for its pastors. You didn't even do that. If we go back to that message in chapter 9, he says that the tithe was collected not only to supply for the needs of the Lord's people, which it was, but it also as an act of worship, overflowing in, in, in many expressions of thanks to God. He defends his ministry. He defends his collection of money. And finally, Paul even defends himself for defending himself. Read this in verse 19. Um, have you been thinking all along that, I've been def- that we have been defending ourselves to, to you? We've been speaking so and so forth, so forth. I mean, this is a double bind if I've ever seen one, right? Criticize someone, and when they defend themselves, say, oh, well, they're just defending themselves. I mean, that is a double bind. Paul knows his integrity matters here, and that is why he is defending himself. And he knows that there's a greater purpose he has in writing this letter. He's writing for more than just a defense of his reputation. He, He doesn't want to get lost in the mix but we see, um, as we think back over my larger point, right, Paul has good reason to jump ship, to, to abandon ship, to let the crew sort things out for themselves. They've called into question his ministry, his collection of money, his own response to their criticism. It sounds like they'd rather have a polished speaker that performs miraculous wonders that would give out of their own time freely and not ask for any donations. But Paul has a very different vision for the church altogether which is part of why he stays. What does Paul see when he sees the church? He doesn't see it as a hall of entertainment where people come to be, um, yeah, to hear a message. he, He sees the church as a family. And that is one of the driving things in his logic of this whole passage. Love commits, and Paul is committed to the Corinthian church in the way that a person commits to a family. Now, we've talked about Paul's reasons to leave. Let's talk about his reasons to stay. But first, let's let's establish that Paul was committed. And I think he was. You see this language in verse 12, right? I persevered. Okay, this, this version puts that at the end of the verse. I did these things with great perseverance. Perseverance is a mark of commitment. Paul says this in verse 14. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. He didn't just come once. He didn't just come twice. In lots of churches, he came just once or twice. But to the Corinthians, he was coming a third time. 
He continues in verse 14. He says, what I want is not your possessions, but you. I mean, this is the voice of commitment. I'm not here for what I can get from you. I'm here for you. In verse 15, Paul writes, I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. I mean, instead of wanting their money to line his own pockets, he says, I'm going to give you my money. And not only that, I'm going to give you everything I have. I'm going to spend myself out for you, pour myself out. He tells them that he does everything for their strengthening, and that's in verse 19, to build them up, to establish them. I mean, he cares about them enough to worry about them, and that's how we, this verse ends with, with a whole lot of anxiety in verses 20 and 21. He's going to be humbled. He's going to be grieved. I mean, clearly Paul was committed. Um, so what are his reasons to stay? The first reason that Paul stays is because he recognizes his relationship with the Corinthians as a parent-child relationship. This is what he says in verse 14. What I want is not your possessions, but you, uh, halfway through the verse. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I mean, in this analogy, Paul is the parent, and he is saving up for his children. He doesn't want to be a burden on them. I think this is significant, but he uses this language of beloved child or beloved children elsewhere in the Corinthian correspondence. Paul planted the church. He started it, and, and in that sense, he was like a parent to the church. But Paul also recognized that the Corinthian church had a need, and they needed parents. They had many legitimate guides, as, as 1 Corinthians 4 says, including Peter and Apollos, but he wrote that they didn't have many fathers. So he took on that role as a father. Now, Paul writes a lot about maturity, and, it, and I think that implying that somebody needs a father is saying something about their level of maturity. I think it's a saying that they're on a developmental curve. They're not very far on that developmental curve. And he recognizes that they need things that children need. People that are young in the faith need particular things. Teaching that resembles milk and not meat. A warm family-like authority structure rather than cold institutional discipline. Children need protection. And they need parents who serve that role, protecting them in order to grow healthy and strong. Paul realizes that God called him up into that develop into the Corinthians developmental process to be like a parent, to raise them up into maturity. And so that's the first reason Paul stays. The second is that I said that Paul acts like a parent, but in fact, he isn't the parent. He recognizes that the Corinthians are God's children. And this especially comes out in the last several verses, midway through verse 19, right? Where we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. And he goes on, and I, I wonder if you've thought about the, this list of sins <laughs> at the end of this passage. Um, why would Paul have such a particular agenda for his own children? Right? He says this in verse 20. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. Oh, that's, that's in verse 21. Sorry. 
For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. That is an unusual thing to say to your children. He fears that there will be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. As well as in verse 21, he talks about a spirit of unrepentance. Now, I can understand people wanting the best for their children, but Paul here is acting as a steward, God's steward. He's acting as a pastor, which means a shepherd, a shepherd of someone else's flock, God's flock. What Paul wants is for these people to grow up into the fullness of Christ. He wants people who have set aside the things that characterize disunity and to walk together in unity. What I find so striking about those words in verse 20 is that they don't have any place in a unified body of equals. Let me read this nice and slow. I fear that they may, that there may be, and here the social dimension in all these, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Friends, these are not words that should describe us. They shouldn't describe the way we live our lives together. God is raising us to be a church that's unified in Christ. And this is, this is the language in verse 19, right? We speak in the sight of God as those in Christ. I want to make a lot of those words, in Christ, because that's God's hope for us. Unity in Christ, not disunity where we promote so-called super apostles and pit ourselves against one another. What were Paul's motivations? Fine, I, I'm going to say that this is the last one, and maybe this is redundant at this point, um, but I haven't actually made this point yet. <laughs> Paul stays and doesn't leave because he's committed. I see Paul's commitment throughout this passage. I mean, the church is rejecting Paul's leadership on mistaken grounds. They seem to have forgotten that Paul performed signs and wonders and miracles among the Corinthians, which is more than the Nazarenes could say about Jesus in their hometown. They seem to have forgotten that Paul was the one who established them in the first place. Over the course of several years of committed ministry, they seem to misunderstand that tithing is a way of caring for brothers and sisters and a way of worshiping God. It has precious little to do with Paul himself. He was busy making tents in their midst to to pay for his own way. They seem to have even taken issue with Paul defending himself against their criticisms. But Paul is committed to them, and this flows out of his love for them. Nowhere else is this better stated than in verse 15. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? If I love you more, will you love me less? The church is like a family. And like in verse 18, we walk in the same footsteps as the Spirit, by the same Spirit. Now, what does that, I mean, what does that mean? We, we don't care for each other because we like each other, which I hope we do. Um, we don't do it because we feel like it, which I hope we do, but we do it because we're committed to each other, which we are. Churches 
commit to each other in love. And churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow and hold out what Paul holds out for the Corinthian church in verse 21, right? That, that they will live repentant lives that are growth-oriented. This has something to do with the, the paradigm of resurrection and the power of self-giving to transform, self-giving love, which is, which is really what we've been talking about in this passage, in this whole series. God, God's love doesn't end in death. And I'm going to say that again. God's love doesn't end in death. It didn't on the cross. Jesus's death became like a seed that was planted. And in his resurrection, that seed sprouted and grew new life. Jesus was the one who established his church, and he called the church to be like a family. Jesus is the one who called the church to holiness. He sent his spirit to comfort us, yes, but also to help us to live repentant lifestyles so we could be safe for one another within a united body, committing to one another in self-giving love. God gave us each other to be the vehicle of his spirit's work. I mean, nothing can change a human life except self-giving love. Nothing can change the human heart except self-giving love. I mean, though Christ had everything, he gave it all up. He gave it all away for nothing. But look around you. Look at the people he did it for. Each of you that trusts in Christ are held in Christ because of the resurrection power of his self-giving love. And because of that, we can say that churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow. Smooth talking, degrees from elite institutions, abundant paychecks, none of these can save you. None of these will save you. They can all sink your heart deeper and deeper to the place where you have no space in your heart for people like my childhood Sunday school teacher and the people around us not put together enough to walk through our doors or who don't stay long when they do. I mean, some of us have gotten a second chance in retirement and praise, praise God for that. But I, pr I pray that we wouldn't operate on that assumed timeline, that, that one day we'll get around to it. My hope is that in this series, it will change the way we think about the words and actions and choices we make that make it into eternity. Those that have resurrection power. Most of our lives are not lived with this paradoxical consciousness that, that characterized Jesus' life and teaching. In terms of love, that means commitment. Commitment when it's hard. Commitment when you don't want to. Commitments when you have reasons to leave. Because love commits and only committed love transforms. I mean, hear this. Churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow. In closing, I want to invite you now to, to consider the place in your heart where you feel a rub. and ask God to meet you there. I want you to consider love that today to you feels like death in your life and ask God for wisdom.
even the places where, where the impact of love feels most daunting. Ask God for courage. If you feel like Paul, and there's rejection that you have faced when you show your commitment, I invite you to consider the maturity of the other party and ask God for help. Ask God what your role is in their life. And I want to renew in us a hope for new life that comes from transforming committed love to one another, that comes from families united in Christ. Because churches committed to each other should expect one another to grow. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the wisdom of Paul, for the fatherly heart of Paul, I thank you for Paul's commitment. Despite reasons to leave, he stayed. And I pray that we would change our imagination to to remove the walls around us and see ourselves as the church that goes out um, and extend your, your family love to a world that might not walk through our doors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.